Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. We read about food, and we read reviews of food, and the New York Times has Pete Wells reviews food beautifully. He's a stunning writer and speaks very honestly about what, what the expectations of a restaurant are. So if he goes and reviews a restaurant and gives it three stars, and there's an amazing octopus plate with salsa verde and celery on it, and that item costs $22, would you be willing to give it a shot? I would. If it's a great plate of food, I think that's a, certainly a, a fair price for great food. Paying people well, the ingredients given, all sorts of things come into the fa- factor into that. But what if that was a taco? If you put it on a tortilla, is it immediately diminished in some way? Because our expectations of tacos that are that they're two, three, four dollars a pop. Well, that's the conundrum that Alex Tupac lives his life in. And at his flagship Empion restaurant, where octopus tacos I mentioned are on the menu for $22 a pair. And then at Empion that bus store in the East Village where we taped this episode, his tacos there are, well, they're five or six dollars a piece. Steep for a taco, but you gotta consider that they're being made by a tiny little whirlwind of a human who is amazing and has chef credentials beyond most people anywhere in this world. So what should a taco cost? Now, that's what Alex and I talk about today in this episode. We also talk about the art of the East Village location, which is all this crazy Mexican art and graffiti. And I'll have some photos of that on Instagram. You can take a look at Hugh Atchison. If you've been listening to Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app. If you're listening to the show in Himalaya, yeah, you can leave questions and comments and I'll try and respond. If you've not been listening to Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot, I'm not judging you, but you should listen. There have been great episodes with Tom Colicchio, Carla Hall, actor John Glazer, and then there was last week's phenomenal episode with Bon Appetit editor-at-large Andrew Knowlton and the amazing chef at Cafe Baloo, Aaron Bluedorn. And that's all about their Netflix series called The Final Table. So, on to this week's episode. Alex Stupak explains tacos. I'm sitting with Alex Stupak, and we're at Empeon Al Pastor on St. Mark's Place in the Village. And uh, thanks for being here. Great to have you, my man. Yeah, I've missed awesome. you. I know it. <laughs> I'm still around. It's more on social media and stuff like that. That's it. No one's ever really anywhere right now. Anymore. We're everywhere. But uh, so, what do you have now working? You've got here and Empeon, which is doing amazing with the new location. And yeah, um, it's it doesn't feel like it, but it's been about almost two years now. Yeah. We opened our our retroactively existing flagship in Midtown. It's doing really well. Um, it has 120 team members, which is daunting to me. 120. So, wow. Yeah. So I just walk in and go, everything okay? Yep. All right, great. Yep. I'll All see right. you later. Let's go. <laughs> That's good. But that idea, you know, coming from where you've, where you've been in pastry and the precision of pastry, it's always so interesting to me to, to, to sort of try and understand the story of you come out of a youth of cooking, you end up at Clio, then you're at Alinea, and then you morph away from pastry and do Mexican food. Yeah, um, well, for the record, I mean, it's like I've always just been interested in cooking broadly. I I love everything about it. So whatever you're exposed to, that's your inspiration. So when you're a kid, you watch Julia Child, you know, and Jacques Pepin fight on TV, and you wanted to cook what they cooked. And but they I, were such enamored fights. I know they were. They were really nice, and and Jacques he tried so hard to just be polite and be like, "I'm not." He, he tried not to act like he was French and he knew better. You could you could feel that. But he always under the better. surface. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I actually started um, cooking savory food. Um, that's a that's kind of a misconception about me. I, no one knew who the hell I was until I left Alinea and went to WD50. Right. So then I was kind of crystallized as a pastry chef. But I actually fell into pastry for um, odd or actually probably ill-advised reasons. You know, I was uh, uh, in my first sous chef job, and I realized I didn't like it, um, and not for good reasons. I was just um, 
I was very young and arrogant, and I really uh, believed that my ideas were really good, and I, I was really um, hell-bent on having my name on a menu. Just really silly things you should I don't not think be... that's an oddity. I think that's every sous chef. Yeah, yeah maybe. I, I, was like, I was like 22, so like in retrospect, shut up. What did I know? Shut up. You yeah. know nothing. Yeah. Um, but the place I was working, the pastry chef, um, quit abruptly, and I kind of BS'd my way into saying, well, I'll do that job, too. I'll, I'll be the pastry chef and the sous chef. You just have to give me the pastry chef title and let me put my name on the menu. And that was actually my first pastry chef job. Where was that? Which then, um, it was called The Federalist in okay, Boston. Yeah. 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 It's not there anymore. No, who was the chef there? Oh, I can't even remember who was there. That's how... That's how long ago it yeah, was. I know. And it was a very oh. short, I was only there for like six months. Yeah. Something like that. It just, it wasn't for but me. you got your name on the menu at 22. Right. Which then parlayed into the pastry chef job at Clio and right. then Alinea and then WD50. So I basically had a decade of these weird pastry chef jobs. And I was like, well, I always said I wanted my own restaurant by the time I was 30. So I better figure that out. Um, the Mexican thing happened organically. It was, it was what I was eating all the time in my spare time. Um, people don't think of Chicago often as a, as a Mexican town, but it is. It's, 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 huge. it's the second biggest Mexican yeah. population in the country. Uh, so that was a great portal for that for me. And I was also looking at, I mean, let's talk about the molecular gastronomy thing for a minute. It's like when, when Ferran and Albert came onto the scene, I, it changed everything for me. Right. It just changed the way... I thought about it, but one of the biggest things that attracted me to it was how counterculture it was. Mm -hmm. You have to remember this was a time when people were not applauding it. They were actually calling bullshit on it, you know, and there's something about that that I love, that punk rock, rebellious, the, the thing that, that turns people off is generally the thing that I'm most attracted to. Now, if that's what got me into being a pastry chef and, and doing all this stuff, after 10 years, it was starting to catch on. You know, it was hard right. to not turn on Top Chef and watch some guy make ice cream with liquid nitrogen, you know, and it's, it, it, it just, it, I, I didn't see myself in it anymore because I, I feel like the, the rebellious nature of it was, was starting to, to get mainstream. Yeah. And yeah. So it, it loses the being at the cusp of the third wave. And looking and applying sort of science to things as simple uh, as pastry or quote unquote simple as pastry was kind of revelatory, mostly with Albert, what Albert did. Um, but looking at that, so then like, but how do you, how do you take something so simple in Mexican food? And again, simple is not, to me, it, that's not insulting to it. It's, it's, it's a very big depth of, of food. But there is an innate simplicity of the preparations. I mean, they're historic. How do you apply science to that idea? Look, I always think the science thing and the creative thing were two separate things. Right. You know, I think they got lumped together. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. I feel like I don't care what you're cooking. I feel like if you, the more you can understand about it, the better. That's, there, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, to me, creativity is about looking at something in a new way. And right. Oftentimes, creativity, a great path towards creativity is just re reversalism, just going in the opposite direction. So I thought when I was opening Empeon that I was going to be dedicated to tradition, to authenticity, because I thought that was the antithesis of what I was doing. You know, places like WD50 and Alinea, they're not rooted in any one culture or any one cuisine. No. So the opposite of that would be to root yourself into one cuisine and okay. stay dedicated to it. That makes sense. Um, so... That was, that was a big shock to the system, and that's what I wanted. Um, once I opened Empeo and I realized I'm not, for a host of reasons, I decided, well, I'm not going to be traditional. I'm not going to be authentic. I'm going to be informed by it, but I just don't want to replicate what, what exists. Right. Um, the more I get into Mexican food, though, still, like seven years later, I actually don't think of it as a simple cuisine. I actually think of it as, like, if you look at a mole or if you look at you know. how things are made, it's like... It's actually very fascinating. It's like, well, a chili needs to be dried and then toasted and then soaked and then de-seeded and then pureed and then passed and then fried in lard. And it's like it has to go through all that just before it's considered 
right. a usable ingredient. That's fascinating to me. Well, it, it, no, it's utterly fascinating to me in the, it, as well in the depth of, of history. When I mean simple, I mean accessible, culturally accessible without the application of deep amounts of science and I get it. And, and sort of learned Western technique. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but the beauty and the complexity of a Merida chili is, is always there. I mean, it's that beautiful, small smokiness um, that, that is not simple in right. a lot of ways. So. I mean, one of the cool things about Mexican food, you don't realize it until you get into it. I, don't, I think it has something to do with just the proximity of Mexico to the United States. They're our neighbor. But Americans, many Americans um, who have grown up with great Mexican food, whether it be in Chicago or Los Angeles, these places, um, they feel like they own it. Um, and they, they, they feel like they, they tend to claim um, ultimate knowledge over it. So you kind of start to learn that no matter what you make, it's going to piss someone off. <laughs> and I know that sounds really weird, but there's something attractive about that to me, how um, controversial it is. Well, you know, I mean, I, I'm a Canadian kid who's lived in the southern U.S. for, you know, over 20 years when I make shrimp and grits as something as simple as that or I make chicken and dumplings it's never going to be better than their mother or their grandmother's right. version. So, but, but as an outsider and a quote-unquote interloper, it's easier for me to put forward a new version. Because I can kind of claim that I'm not from there, but this is my visualization of what it should be. You don't have a southern grandmother to piss off, um, right. so you can sort of look at it objectively. Exactly. Yeah. Um, simultaneously, though, it's like this is why I came to the point, well, I'm just not going to replicate anything, because you're never... Like, I mean, in, even within uh, a place like Oaxaca, no one's going to agree on, well, that's the way. Right. You know what I mean? So to me, it, it was all futile anyways. To me, like, it, it, so understand it at a deep level and then be inspired by it and move on. But don't, don't replicate it. Yeah, I mean, what, what is a mole? I mean, it, what is a mole is, you know, 200 years and 85 different ingredient choices and what can go into it. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's like, well, it's got to contain chocolate. It's like, no, it doesn't. And I mean, it can be mushrooms. It mm -hmm. can be all sorts of things. And it's just complexity and creation of umami flavors within that. And But yeah, there, I was down in Mexico City recently and just... It's so amazing, the food world down there. And from high end to very low end, you know, tacos de canasta on the corner from a guy who gives you a plastic plate that's in a, you know, a saran wrap sleeve. So he can, you, he can pull it out afterwards and he uses the plate again, cover it with a new yeah. sleeve. Yeah, I love that. And movie. he gives you a taco he's made in the morning and he's got two salsas hanging on the front of his bike with old plastic spoons in it. And you eat it, and you're like, uh, I think that was the best taco I've ever had. Yeah. And it, you know, costs you 50 cents, and it's phenomenal. And a lot of people don't, tacos are canasta, which means basket tacos, yeah. also called tacos sudados or yeah. sweaty tacos. Yeah, because they're brushed with lard after right. they're made to keep But they're made in advance. Yeah, they're made in advance, and they, they just steam all day, and the tortilla gets soft and almost borderline soggy, and they're just awesome. It's almost like a tamale crust with a taco. Uh, it, it's kind of got that soft, yeah. sort of mossy texture because the tortilla is so moist at that point, but they're so good. So... How do you, I, and I found myself taking deep dives into Southern food, mostly years ago when I first got to the South, and trying to figure it out. But there's always a different pathway to learning. And I find it intriguing to learn, like, to, to get told by others, what is their process of learning? Like, if you want to learn more about Mexican food, what did you do? Like, what, where, where, where's the deep dive? Where's the cultural immersion that you can do? Is it travel? Is it books? Is I it mean, the, the great watching? thing is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all those things. I mean, the great thing about our business or our industry is I actually find that our colleagues, whether they are our competitors or not, everyone's very open and everyone's very happy to share. So, I mean, I've read every book I feel like was worth reading. Mm -hmm. um, I've never lived in Mexico. I get asked that often. I've maybe been about 11 times. Mm -hmm. And just going and eating everything is a great way to learn. Um, before opening Empeon, I, uh, Rick Bayless was nice enough to let me trail in his kitchen for a week. And that was really informative, just looking at from coming from a place that's only cooking sous vide to a place where everything is toasted and burnt and smoked and fried, 
just operationally getting to see that yeah. was awesome. Um, so there, nothing's hidden. It, it's really all all there. Um, so I suppose it's like you find these gems. You go to Mexico. Like um, I, I went to this place in Oaxaca where they had these tamales called tichanitas, mm-hmm. which um, have you had these? Yes. So if you have, most people had never had. Most people in Oaxaca never had, but it's fascinating. It's like mussels, uh, like the shellfish mussels that are so tiny, basically the size of a fingernail, are folded into a tamal batter, shell and all, with the idea that, that, that as it steams, it gives that shellfish flavor to it. And you're like picking, it's like it's a, a million little stuffed... Yeah. Muscles all at once in a tamal. Yeah. Now, could I serve that in cosmopolitan New York City and have it be accepted? I'm pretty damn sure no. How, how good are your staff with uh, <laughs> choking? No, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's like, it's, but that can make me think of something. Can you distill that down to dried scallops and pieces of mouth? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I and I love the irony that if I put that dish forward as is people would often rebuke it as non-traditional. Right. You know, that's when you get the, well, that's not Mexican and I know. So I just love the irony but, of that. But, like, Yeah, but that irony sort of segues into a lot of other conversations that we can have. But that irony also, again, sort of gives this simple mantle to Mexican food that they're not allowed to take Mexican ingredients as Mexican chefs and elevate them and have progress. And it's the same thing as Southern food. Southern food gets this idea that it is, it went through a time, and that time is Southern food. And it has a beginning and an end. And now you're supposed to replicate again, over and over, and repeat, and those dishes. And that's the tone. But you're not allowed to change them. Food should never stop I, I progress. Yeah, I agree. I don't know why certain cuisines um, want to be proselytized. But nobody it, says that about French food. No, Nobody and again, says that about it. Well, I guess maybe they do about it. I, I, French to a degree. I think everyone says everything if you talk to all people. So yeah, it, I mean, it, Massimo like, gets you know sure. torn apart by people, you know, purists saying that's not a ravioli. I, I always say this though: it's like it's not you can't destroy tradition. So doing something new is not destroying tradition or authenticity. Ways, it's, it's giving an homage to tradition. 100%. It's like one restaurant doing a, a spin on a dish or an innovation is not going to destroy thousands of years of tradition. It's not going to burn all those books. It's not going to null, uh, nullify all that documentation. Yeah. It, like I don't know why people... Actually, but I'm fascinated by it too because um, food is one of these magical things where people get incensed over it, they, like more so than politics, more so than religion... And it's just food, which I love. It's like we work in the toy department, but one where people get so... It, it, there's something powerful about it. Like People have big feelings about food, and really it's just nourishment no, I, and sustenance. But we understand why. I mean, no, it's I, important to them. It's their... 100%. It's, their, it's the makeup. It's the uh, deja vus of our world. You know, food always takes us back to something. This show is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox delivers healthy, 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range chicken, organic, and heritage breed pork directly to your door on a monthly basis. It's a subscription for goodness. All their products are humanely raised and never, ever given antibiotics or hormones. It's hard to find high-quality meat you can trust. ButcherBox is changing that. They offer free shipping anywhere in the United States, in the 48 contiguous states, that is. Not only is it convenient, the taste is unbelievable. So just a reminder, I'm a chef. There's a huge difference in flavor between animals raised on pasture and those fed grain and concentrated animal feedlot operations. There's no commitment, and you can cancel at any time. Right now, get $20 off and free ground beef for life. That's two pounds of ground, 100% grass-fed ground beef in every order for the lifetime of your subscription. A lot of burgers. To get the deal, go to butcherbox.com backslash stir the pot. Eat well, be swell. So, okay, in the beginning of Empeon, I remember reading a lot about. Um, your sort of bewilderment 
about the economics of the taco. Mm -hmm. And I remember you and kind of paraphrasing, but if you take the tortilla away from a scallop taco that you've worked fastidiously on to make beautiful and stunning and just put the scallop on a plate, you're allowed to charge $18 for an appetizer. Sure. If you, rem if you put the tortilla back in and call it a taco, it's the assumption is it should be $3.50 at the most. Yeah, yeah. I mean, generally, that's yeah. the reaction. Like, still to this day, that's the reaction. And, and, but that's always struck me as really weird because, it, it, you, know, they're, they're, you know, from um, Pujol to other the Mexican high, high-end institutions of fine dining, that type of cuisine exists in a fine dining setting but just in Mexico, I think it's always had a difficult time, separate from Rick Bayless, to get and separate now from Empeon and what you've done. But I think you've got you've fought the fight to get into that realm. Mm -hmm. um, that Mexican food should always be not even inexpensive, but cheap. Mm -hmm. And cheap is such a horrible word because inexpensive applies. Um, it's a it, it it uses technique and uh, thriftiness to get to a great result. Cheap is cheap. Yeah, there's a lot there. And I mean, when Empeon opened up, we never actually said, I never huddled up with anyone and said, well, let's just charge a lot of money for tacos. It right. actually happened out of, um, we had to create a socioeconomic argument out of um, operational need. I mean, here's what anyone, here's what I've learned. Tacos are brain hijackers. They will, if you put them on the menu, everyone will short circuit and go to those. This is why a place like Peter Luger was smart enough to not serve the burger at dinner. Maybe if they had made that mistake, it wouldn't have been a steakhouse anymore yeah. because everyone will get the burger. It's yeah. a brain hijacker. There's just certain menu items like that. So I had a menu that had six tacos and six main courses on it. And something very quickly, like within the first two weeks, happened is that no one was ordering the main courses and everyone was serving, ordering the tacos. And those tacos were $3.50 a piece. Yeah. So I had a restaurant... Um, with restaurant service and restaurant chairs and restaurant music and everything that comes along with a restaurant Salsa serving glasses and really nice product right. and yes family. and serving something at a street food price so basically what I had is a restaurant that people were loving so much that I was going to go out of business right that's the best way I could say it so we had to look at like okay they're not they're not touching the main courses they're they're touching me so we have to have we, we just need a higher check average to, to, for this to, to live. So we just said, well, what, what, would a main, what would a main course cost and what would be on that plate? So you start, you stop looking at pork shoulder so much. I mean, you still look at that, but you start looking at scallops or lobster or steak or whatever. And then objectively go, well, what would this cost in Manhattan? I'm buying it from the same purveyor as my neighbor across the street. Um, so as you say, I just put it on a tortilla. Once you put it on a tortilla, something magical happens. Yeah. It becomes a taco, and people go, <laughs> "That's not worth." This sucks. Right, because, yeah. Like tacos should be a dollar. So then you have to remain dedicated to that fight, and you have to say, "Well, it actually." It, I, I didn't realize this, but when you think about it, the taco is the one preparation in all of the Mexican larder that everyone has an opinion about. Right. So people do not have opinions generally about tamales or tlayudas or sopes or mamelas or mole or whatever. So whether your mole costs $29 or $34, you're not going to hear a lot of flack about that. But yeah, $1, $2, $3 on a taco, it, it, people get, yeah. yeah. And that's not just in America, that's everywhere. That's every, everyone has this, this preconception about it. So you can look at that as a problem, or you can look at that as actually um, a powerful tool to stir up some shit. You know what I mean? Because it's like, well, if you're saying that's not worth it, is it not worth it because I have a qualitative issue with it, or is it not worth it because Mexico's not worth it? You know what I mean? Like, it, like you see what I'm saying? Yeah, it it ties to everything. Yeah. It's like a flight to Mexico should be cheaper than a flight to France. It, like, it, like... So it, it comes down to how do you evaluate the entire culture. Um, so again, it's like we we never meant to be a taco brand, right? And I do believe that Empeon has some. We have shown we have many tricks up our sleeves, not just that. And right. I think we will continue to 
um, evolve in that way. But like the last seven years, it's been an interesting thing. And I'm actually kind of proud. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing some restaurants around town that I feel like they're using my playbook from 2012. I, 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 I feel mean, like they are. I think Appa and yeah, places like that are, are definitely took a step forward based on the path that you created yeah, that you it, went down. That doesn't make, that makes me happy actually. And you um, went down a path in the only way Alex Stupak knows, which is you took a machete and sort of carved it out aggressively <laughs> running forward. Um, but it worked. And, uh, but it, it is an interesting premise that, uh, the Mexican food is still a sort of, you know, people just have that automatic assumption that it should be very inexpensive. And I think it sort of shortchanges an entire country when we do that. So, sure. And it's unfortunately a country that's being shortchanged by the U.S. every day. So, But that's another political talk for another podcast, probably. <laughs> um, so what's exciting you these days, other than having two wonderful little kids? And uh, how, how has fatherhood changed you? It uh, It's changed me a lot in that I, um, I guess... To get personal, when you think about success pre-children, at least for me, I think it's a very self-centered, ego-driven endeavor. Whether you're conscious of that at the time or not, that's what I feel like it was. Where now it's much more like, well, shit, I got to be successful because I need to like buy a house one day and get in a good school district and make sure my kids go to college and yeah. all, all that stuff. So it really does... Um, it, it hasn't changed my day-to-day -day, um, in terms of what I do, um, but it has changed why I'm doing it, for sure. Yeah, um, it, It's just different in that way. Another way it's really changed me is that you start to realize how much time you wasted pre-children. Right. Um, in that, you know, you, you work on Sunday. Even if you take, even if without kids you took a Sunday off, you'll you know, you'll be on the computer and you'll do your emails and you'll sharpen your knife and whatever. And it's like, you can't write your list for four hours anymore because your son wants to play. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you have to get more efficient. You have to figure out how to do things in eight hours a day or 12 hours a day that used to take you 16. The, the, well, I, th I think if I, yeah, parenthood makes that 16 hour day seem utterly pointless and really clarifies that there is no point to working 16 hours a day. It just, it's defeating to yourself and most of the people around you. 100%. But I think chefdom has changed in that way and that we're valuing the holistic approach to sort of wellness um, outside and at the workplace. But so let's talk about the economics of restaurants these days overall. Like, how are you hiring people? I mean, it's a really low unemployment market. There's really yeah. nobody out there who really um, wants to cook anymore, it seems. Um, I, I think that you have to... We This is a, a massive internal conversation, I think, for everyone. Yeah. You know, everyone's saying the same thing. Everyone's mm -hmm. saying there's no more cooks. That's what, I, that's what I'm hearing. Um, I mean, you have to really look at... If you were a cook and you went to go work at your restaurant, would you have been legitimately blown away? Right. That's a great way to edit yourself. And if you wouldn't have been blown away, um, why? Because yeah. whatever yeah. that is, write it down on a list, and that's a point to edit. That's yeah. a point to work on. Um, you know, so I, I refuse to believe that, well, millennials don't want to work, and it's all going to hell, and pretty soon robots are going to run kitchens. I, like, I mean... Maybe that's true, but we shouldn't have to accept that truth. The cool thing about a restaurant is that you're within four walls and you control everything within it. You know, you can't control what's happening outside, but you can control what's happening inside. And if you really are trying to make every facet of it better every day, I have to go forward with the belief that you will just start attracting the, the best people, you know? Yeah. And, you know, uh, chefs of my generation often say the same thing too of like, well, well, when I was a kid, you know, I worked for 16 hours a day and they paid me shift pay and I only made $300 a week. And even if I worked seven days, they only paid me for five days. And they were, you know, I used to get yelled at. And now everyone works 40 hours a week and gets time and a half and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I think about that, like back to a parent, it's like, well, parents want their child to have a better life than they had. That's just a natural um, instinct in a good parent. So as a leader or as an employer, you should want your cooks to have a better life than, than you had. Yeah. yeah. I, I, so 
I mean, my goal is like, well, how do you get them all at, you know, like, think about this. It's like the second you're a sous chef that, well, that just means you're going to be working 50 or 60 hours a week. That just means that it's just kind of a flaw in our system of that. Well, I'm giving you a raise sort of, but I'm also going to work in you, work you harder. So it's like other industries are not like that. And I'm not saying I figured it out, but I think about it a lot. Well, it's like, how do you get your line cooks all to make 25 bucks an hour to start? And how do you have sous chefs that can work 45 hours a week? And like, it's like, and I I don't know how, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. You know what I mean? And when people, I think it's possible. I mean, I think, I think it's how you work. And I think uh, I think we're often looking at it wrong from a kitchen perspective that we can get the best work out of people in a 40 to 40, 40 to 50 hour week work week. And that's it. I mean, and that over that, that there are efficiencies that they're not seeing and that there are ways of acting and conducting yourself in a kitchen that you're wasting some time somewhere in there that can be much more productively spent doing a crossword at home over coffee mm-hmm. as you talk to a friend. Um, but that's good. That, that makes you a better chef. That, that other work that you do in the world enables you to come into the work scenario bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and excited to be there. If you come in and you're exhausted from working 16 hours the day before, you're not that much used to me. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I mean, maybe, you know, but the grumpy old man generational speak is always funny. It is funny. You know, it's like, I worked up 90 hours a week and... You know, we used to duck from pots and get hit, and it's mm-hmm. like, do you want to do that now? Yeah, that, fuck that. 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 <laughs> it's like I, we've come this far. It's become more human, and I think it will become continue to become more human. The short of it is, we're hiring. I'm looking for cooks. There you I'm, go. I'm, I'm always down cooks, but Alex is hiring. But simultaneously, we have three restaurants right now, and we have 250 employees, so we're we are staffed. I mean, yep. like we need more. Yeah, we need but more, and it, I think I, I think it's exactly, but. I think it's just something you have to work on all the time. It is. I mean, but that's what that's what chefing is. Um, to me, it's uh, it, I always equate it to constant triage. Uh, great leaders and good chefs are the ones who can walk in and quickly pivot within their own four walls that they have control over, over what's wrong at that point in the, the day. What is wrong right now? You triage together a list and you get through it with everybody working with you. And you're able to lead them with a smile and you're doing things that nothing is beneath you. Um, those are the worst chefs who won't do anything because they think you know doing dishes beneath them. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the ones we want to throttle. Um, but yeah, I think that the ever morphing leadership of uh, quell I always call it quelling chaos. That's what restaurants are. Restaurants are very very chaotic. But it's really nice to come in and be the the one person who can kind of lay calm to the scenario that you created. So, the leader of the symphony. It's a beautiful thing when it happens. It is. I wear glasses. You can call me four eyes, but I'm very stylish. Also, I cannot read without the glasses. Therefore, I do not care what you think, but I think they're stylish because they're worn with perkers. And Warby Parker makes really nice glasses, starting at $95, including prescription lenses. Free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses, try them on for five days, and they're no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Head to warbyparker.com backslash Hugh, H-U-G-H, to order your free home try-ons today. The home try-on kit's amazing. It's fun, it's interesting, and you send the back ones you don't want. You can also, if you've got an iPhone X, you can download the Warby Parker app and you can use the brand new virtual try-on, allowing you to try on glasses, seeing the realistic color, texture, and size of each style using just your phone. Glasses are not an accessory to me. They're a, well, they're a needed thing. They give me an advantage of reading the fine print. That is pretty important. But they are also stylish, and therefore they do somewhat fall into the accessory category, but they are much cooler than a hat, a necktie, a kerchief, a bolo tie, or one of those clip-on ties. Much cooler. Best accessory ever. Go to warbyparker.com backslash Hugh, H-U-G-H.
podcast world is growing bigger and bigger every day, and Himalaya wants to help you navigate it. Himalaya is a brand new podcast app where you can find every single podcast you love and some future phase as well. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya's got your back. Discover personally curated playlists and show your favorite podcasters some love with Himalaya's tip jar. It's free, it's the easiest to use, and we're adding cool new features every day. Go to your app store, download Himalaya, that's H-I-M-A-L-A-Y-A, and don't forget to follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot once you're there. So tell me about where we are. We are our Tempeon uh, Alpha store, yes, which sells a lot of beautiful mezcal and tequilas. And tell me about the art, because the art is everywhere. Sure. Um, so yeah, we're situated on the corner of St. Mark's and Avenue A. Uh, we are right across the street from Tompkins Square Park, and a very historic park. Yeah, the East Village and the Lower East Side are just my favorite neighborhoods here, and I think there's a nostalgic thing in that. When I moved here, my only job ever in New York City was WD50, and that's this area. So uh, I, I look, it's not the busiest neighborhood, but to me, it's one. It's still one of the most charming and New Yorky neighborhoods it's from very New York from from my perspective. Um, yeah, so uh, this was a sushi bar that went out of business, and it was painted school bus yellow, so we had to completely gut renovate it. And then we were left something that looked really shiny and new, and I wanted this to be sort of an homage to the, to the types of bars in this neighborhood that I think are going away. It's just one that happens to focus on mezcal and tequila, and happens to serve tacos amidst a whole other bunch of mash note American-Mexican bar snacks. Um, so art, yeah, I... I'm a big fan, like, look, I'm a big fan of architecture, I'm a big fan of design, but the art world is my favorite differentiator, because I believe that, like, look, sooner or later, everyone's worked with the same 30 architects, Mm -hmm. so things start to become commoditized, things start to have a consistent look throughout the city, so with working with artists directly and commissioning them, I think you have something that can't be replicated. Yeah. So uh, right when you walk in the door, you see this sort of uh, ominous yellow painting. Uh, there's this uh, greenish lady with a sort of Day of the Dead corpse face paint on, kind of staring you down right when you walk in. Uh, that artist's name is Sylvia G. Uh, right. she, she's based uh, on the West Coast. She's my wife's favorite artist. So when we were opening our first restaurant, I bought a Sylvia G painting for my wife as a gift. And she decided to hang it in our first restaurant. Ever since then, um, we've been friends with her, and we've commissioned her to do an original work in all of the restaurants. Wow. Um, So that's a very brand-consistent thing for us. If you look up on the ceiling, which many people do not do, um, this is a, a piece by a street artist who goes by the name of Gaia. I was actually just walking around the streets of New York City, and I saw this big, crazy, propaganda-like piece that really prodded at problems with socioeconomics and politics and religion and all of it in very big sort of symbolic way. Um, all of the all of the Empeones have a really big mural piece and here there was no place to put it on the ceiling um, but I just let him have at it and he was like Leonardo da Vinci for like two weeks just painting on his back getting this done. Um, that would have been physically taxing to do. Uh, it's it's Pretty brilliant. Yeah, and it, it's it's. I love the irony. To to me, discovery is very important for me in my restaurants. Meaning, like, if you just like the room, you like the room. But if you want to start looking around and noticing the yeah. details, you can. I'm actually blown away that people don't look up and notice this thing, which is what is it? It's the head of a it's the head of a lamb um, on a pillar of American dollar bills um, with a, a two hands in sort of a religious. <laughs> Um, pose, one holding a butterfly, another one, I'm not making this up, it sounds like I'm on an acid trip right now, another one holding a, um, I guess, a shepherd's rod, and it kind of is uh, talking about uh, issues of narco-terrorism and the way money flows from (laughs) back and forth from the United States and Mexico. Um, I never asked him to explain it. I just let him do whatever the hell he wanted, and this is what I got. Well, you definitely got something that's deep in meaning. And you're never going to find anything like it in any other restaurant. 
Um, this is a, this sculpture right here, um, which I would describe it, people who cannot see it, is a, a humanoid figure, um, a female humanoid figure, um, and you know it's female because you can see the bare breasts, um, with the head of a rat. So um, this was done by a, a sculptor. Her name is Beata Reutberg. Okay. Um, Beata is based right in Brooklyn, a uh, young, freakishly talented girl um, who is really obsessed with the idea of... Um, Anthropomorphics, the idea of like uh, like a tree can look like an arm or uh, like an, an animal figure can start to look like the, the plant world. Um, the only direction I gave her is that I wanted a rat. Um, no one knows this, but all the Empeones are each gifted a spirit animal when we open them. Um, so I gave this animal the rat because I think rats are malleable and will do anything to survive. Mm -hmm. And man, my company was going through some shit when I opened this thing. So that, that's where my head was at. So I told her to do a rat, and then she turned it into that um, grotesque figure. That, it's uh, pretty awesome, though. Yeah, I'm a fan. I, I don't know if I say grotesque. I think it's pretty beautiful in a lot of ways. Oh, I love Super it. Cool. I think it's badass. And yeah. again, it's definitely a bold choice for a decor, even of a divey bar, in my opinion. Yep. Um, here is a uh, this portrait, which is the portrait of a cat, was done by... Um, Boris Jairala, another local Brooklyn artist. Um, if all of my restaurants have a spirit animal, they also have a mascot. I'm a crazy cat person. I have three cats, and there's a portrait of each one of them in each of my restaurants. So that's Percy. Um, Percy is one-eyed. He was missing an eye. He was actually a rescue cat after Hurricane Sandy. Oh, wow. um, unfortunately, his eye got infected and had to get removed. But um, that was painted right when we got him. Uh, he's a lot fatter now, um, so he's, he's a happy cat. Um, what else do we have around here? You can see a lot of graffiti. Uh, so, like I said, when we renovated this place, it looked really shiny and new, and we wanted it to kind of harken back to what we thought the corner of St. Mark's and Avenue A looked like in 1985. So we just put out a Craigslist ad, um, uh, sort of crowdsourcing uh, graffiti artists who were active uh, in uh, the late 80s and the early 90s. And a lot of really awesome people came out of the woodwork and offered to paint all this for me for free. I mean, they basically worked for beer, more or That's less. Great. They said, you know, and uh, you can tell it, it wasn't like they just did a piece and walked away. They came back over and over and over again. Um, and it, it looks, basically it's artifice, right? We're, we're trying to make it look like there were 20 years of graffiti here already. And I think they did a pretty good job of it. Um, Hold on. Let, let's talk about this tortilla. Sure. So. We are in the kitchen now and looking at, uh, what is a tortilla maker? That is a fully automated tortilla oven. Um, okay. So, again, I, I'm, I'm completely unobjective, but. I think this place is pretty badass in that, like, okay, it's a bar with great bar snacks, and I'll argue tacos could possibly be the best bar snack ever. And we, even though we're a little place here, we make them with a great deal of idealism. This place actually nixtamalizes its own corn, grinds it from scratch, and processes it into fresh tortillas every day. So at 4 p.m. today, this, this baby's going to be fired up, and it's going to be kicking out the, the best tortillas, you know, you've had in a long time. So are you using the tortillas that come out of here in any of the any of the other places no i we used to when we were a bit smaller but yeah. now um basically each one of my restaurants has its own fully functioning tortilla production capabilities you know and that's actually important too because these ovens are like harley davidson's they're they're going to break yeah it's fire but it's also like bike chains and grease and gears and, and who works on it uh uh, there's a guy. Yeah, one of my servers actually uh, spent some time in the Mexican Air Force, and apparently that's what you experience you need to have the mechanical ability to work on these. So we just call him. His name's JC, and nice. we just call JC. And um, at this point, I'm pretty sure he makes more money than anyone in the company because he's the most important person based on that skill set. Um, one interesting feature that people don't really notice that much is the bathrooms in that um, if you look, this brick right here was um, original. So we scraped all this yellow paint off of it 
and we found all these all this graffiti. You can see people have tagged like their names on each individual brick. So as far back as we could tell, this is from the old dive bar that was here in the 80s called Alcatraz. And again, when we were gutting this place, that's when we had the inspiration for the entire thing. We wow. were like, we found that and it felt historic for us. So we had to make everything that way. So you can see here, the rest of the bathroom, we painted it in chalkboard paint. So people can do whatever they Exactly, want. and left chalk lying around, yeah. which invited the timid spirits to start um, you know, defacing it, which then of course now it's just covered in graffiti. You can see like this mirror is like scratched to all hell, covered in in um, stickers, and it sounds like um, this would be a problem, like something that I would need to fix. But it was actually we stimulated this. We wanted this to 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 become. But one of those stickers says "pugasm," and I don't even want to know that. I, again, I it's it's open forum, so I can't really edit in that way. <laughs> I got to let people do what they want to do. So yeah, I mean, I, it's. And again, this is my my divey place, but whether we're doing this or something high end, I really love bringing a eclectic confluence of elements because then I feel like we have something, there's just nothing like it. You couldn't copy it. You couldn't mistake it for something else. No, it's a one of. Yeah. So, I mean, again, again, I'm not objective, but for me, it's my favorite bar in the East Village. You know, um, it has all my favorite drinks. It has all my favorite food. That's awesome. And it's a lot of fun. It's like, I mean, it, it's plenty hard to run, but it's a lot easier than running a restaurant. It, I like that it's small. I like that we have the same nine teammates and, and they've been some, here for a while. Yeah. And, and they're all friends and a, you know, they're, and you, it's a good sign when your employees come and hang out here on their day off. Yeah. That, that's a good sign. That, that to me means we've really built a place that people want to be in. But that also goes to knowledge and ability with authenticity to sell the food and the drinks. Totally. Because they actually want to come here and enjoy them themselves. So that's totally. a game changer of a thing. What music are you listening to? These days, I personally, um, I'm pretty much all metal all the time. He's all metal all the time. Yeah. I, I, I listen to a lot. I, I write all the playlists for my restaurants, and I do not play metal um, in any of my restaurants. That would clear a room. play metal here? You, you kind of be surprised. I don't know. People are a little... A little shaky with the metal? Yeah, you know, it's it, things have changed. Um, things have changed. Um, people don't know what punk rock or metal is anymore. But, yeah, personally, I'm a big fan of metal. Most specifically, I'm, I'm really into black metal and death metal. Um, and I know that sounds scary, but metal's nerdy. Like, if metal's you're, like, totally like, nerdy. It's nerdy. Like, if you're into, like... If you were ever into Dungeons and Dragons or geeking out on Star Wars or anything, metal's like a, a good music genre for you to get into all the nitty gritty. Like it's like metalheads love genres and they love subgenres and they like classifying things and they like arguing over it and it it's just a lot of fun. If you've ever been to a Mastodon concert, they're yeah, it's mostly a bunch of nerd guys. Totally. Yeah. And I I mean I like that too in that it's not um. It's different than punk rock for me. It's like I, I respect punk rock a lot, but um, they're they're very different in that punk rock is actually was actually designed to self destruct, in my opinion. I think that was the point of it in many ways. Whereas metal is rebellious in a different way. It's it's out there. It's not trying to not be successful, but simultaneously, it's also not trying to get you to like it. Um, and metal is very pure in a way in that it's all about technical chops. It's all about the skill of it. And people really judge that harshly. It's, it's less about the, um, I mean, there's glam metal and stuff out there still, believe it or not. But um, I think it's evolved into something that isn't about uh, image. It's about technical ability. And yeah. that, that's something I can, I mean, in this day and age, or maybe it's always been this day and age, like as a chef, it's it, sometimes people that you truly admire as technicians are not the most camera friendly or TV friendly or outgoing or affable or whatever, you know what I mean? And, and that's a real shame because sometimes those people get drowned out or they get forgotten. Um, so who's it, the equivalent of uh, the death metal chef? I think Jordan Kahn probably close. <laughs> Jordan Kahn is a, uh, is probably my best friend on earth. Um, he's, 
100% not noticed enough, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, anyone who knows him and how much thought he puts into his food. Um, into everything. Into everything. Yeah. It, it's insane. And actually, I think Jordan and I, in many ways, are kindred spirits in terms of how we think about every element of the restaurant. I think we're, we're different stylistically. Mm-hmm. He's a little bit more, um, what do you say? He's a, he's very David Lynch to me. Yes. He, I don't know how to explain it more than that. It's, it's it, more Cronenberg, but yeah. It's yeah. really about define a very clear set of rules to yourself, follow them religiously, but then obscure that do not explain that to everyone, to anyone else. Do not like it, it, it in that way. It and the the code of conduct, conduct that only you know. And I mean, Jordan's um, he's huge into the art world. He's huge, and I mean, I'm into the more contemporary the stuff. But I haven't eaten at the restaurant, but we walked by it uh, recently in L.A. I, the architecture on that is insane, and the architecture informed a lot of his inspiration. He really started looking at the architectural world as a, as a medium, you know what I mean? And again, it, 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 he should get noticed for that more. You know, I mean, a lot of what Ferran Adria was doing back in the day with El Bulli was adapting sensibilities of uh, the art world. Like when people think of modern, the word modern or modernism, they just think of, of the moment or new. Whereas modernism was actually a period in art. And the real point of it was stripping all the artifice away it's stripping everything away to get to the, the most essential element. So if you think about, well, here's the most pure way to taste basil. I'm going to make it as a foam. And like that, that, was, that was modernity. That was a period. Yeah, um, Yeah, Jordan's the shit. That's all i got to say about him. He's, uh, I admire him greatly. Well, everyone should, but I think he's, uh, he is amazing. Yeah, very, very linear. Very interesting. Well, Alex, this has been awesome. Yeah, thanks for dropping by. It's a good day. It's raining, so it's good to be inside chatting with you. So we're going to leave you from Empayon Al Pastor. This has been Alex Dupac and Hugh chit-chatting away. Enjoy. This episode of Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot was taped on location at Empeon, Al Pastor in the East Village in Manhattan, and you should go. Scott Porch produces the show for Himalaya Media with field recording by Brian Blum, sound design by Alex Ramsey, and editing by Mackenzie Mazel. Please follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, rate and review on your podcast app, and come back on Tuesdays for new episodes. You can find me on Twitter or on Instagram, at Hugh Atchison. Thanks for listening. Eat well. Be swell.